0: I believe in the power of long-term institutional change. One of the few really accurate predictions I've ever made in my life was that this was going to take decades, this work. And it has, but by taking decades, it built up that momentum that you're talking about.
1: Hi, Vicki Robin here, uh, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute, and we're glad you're here. Today we have a special treat. Everyone is a special treat. This is very special for me because today's interview is with Alan Ackerson, and Alan and I met around 1988 and sort of grew up together in the new field of sustainable development. And it's just sort of hot off the presses then And together we started Sustainable Seattle, a citizen-led group that developed one of the first comprehensive indicators of sustainability. We said at that time that our goal was that sustainability would be considered in every decision in the city of Seattle. And that was sort of a bodacious goal, but that goal is being met many times over in many, many places. Alan's book, Believing Cassandra, is still poignantly relevant. It was a a plea for decision-makers at every level of society to take the data about our deadly direction seriously. I was there also when he wrote a song, Dead Planet Blues, around about 1989. And um, his life is dedicated to never getting to that Dead Planet Blues state. A little bit about Alan, sort of the official biography is that he has been a recognized leader and innovator in sustainable development movement for over 30 years. His books and tools and methods were widely adopted around the world for use in business, government, cities, schools and universities. Starting in 1992, he began traveling the world as a speaker, trainer and senior consultant in the field, visiting over 50 countries led several pioneering initiatives and organizations, advised numerous companies and institutions, including the United Nations Secretariat and European Commission, and taught hundreds of officials and executives about the principles and practices of sustainability, innovation, change agentry, et cetera. In 2018, he stepped away from that role and the company he founded and took on the role of Assistant Director General and director of the Department of Partnership and Innovation at the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, CETA. Uh, as a government official, he now represents CETA in international fora and manages a department of over 100 people who focus on research, civil society, capacity development, catalytic finance, development innovation, and partnerships with business, investors, and other Swedish government agencies. So in this conversation, Alan takes us behind the scenes in one of the world's most rational pro-social and data-driven governments, Sweden, to see, how <laughs> excuse me, to see how sustainability done right looks. That word sustainability has been a problem since the first day I said it. So Alan lets us see how sustainability done right looks. I found it extremely illuminating and saw things that I had never seen before from inside my dear beloved United States of America. Now, Alan. So hi, Alan. It's so good to be with you. Yeah, hi. for people who are watching, you just have to know that Alan and I met in the 1980s. So you are one of my longest term allies. and. Um, I'm just going to also say, because I want to, that um, one of my big memories is early on, we went to the Globescope Pacific Assembly together. Yes. And that was like my first awareness of the idea of a sustainable development. That's where I learned the term. That's where I was exposed to all the, the problems and some solutions and That's where I had the inspiration that, you know, transforming your relationship with money actually could help the biggest problem on the planet. And that's where we sat around and you wrote Dead Planet Blues.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did, I did. We were, we were were all profoundly and ironically moved by that conference at the same time. On the one hand, we were getting lots of good information um, from leading thinkers of the day, uh, and very also from very prominent people, most of whom had flown in by private jet, and we were also sort of swooning at the irony of talking about issues of global poverty and sustainable development in a fancy hotel in Los Angeles with a, a giant swan sculpture in ice. Uh, I and, don't
1: remember the swan sculpture.
0: Oh, I remember the, de- I remember the details.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and, and that 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 led to a certain. Shall we say ambiguous relationship with the, with the contents of the conference? On the one hand, we were getting inspired. On the other hand, we were thinking if if this is how people are going to try to save the planet, we're we're sort of doomed.
1: Uh, exactly.
0: And thus was born a song, "The Dead Planet Blues."
1: Exactly. And do you care to do just one little stanza of it, or it, I mean, you can blow it off, and we'll just put it in the uh-huh. show notes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I got them old dead planet blues. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll put in the show notes so people can um, see they it. Can but it. yeah, it's on exactly. Spotify.
0: It's on it's it's on Apple Music. It's everywhere. You can find the dead planet blues.
1: Yeah. So I bring this all up because um, in our own ways, uh, you more loyal to the issue than I. Um, or to the leading edge of the issue to like staying right on the point of sustainable development. What is sustainability? How do we get there? How do we accelerate our journey? We've been on this for like 30, 35 years. Um, And you've really been through so many iterations. You've been a writer, you developed that, that uh, amoeba game about how culture changes. You've developed games, you've led organizations, you started your own organization. And now here you are in Sweden leading a government agency. You know, so of all the people that I'm, I know personally, because I know you as a human and I know you as a, as a leader, you are the most loyal to this issue. Um, and so here we sit you know <laughs> 2021, um, and I don't want to go into a whole long intellectual assessment of how far we've come and blah, 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 blah. Um, I mean, from my point of view, we're not far enough by a long shot and um, I would imagine yours as well. but it, it's like where now, you know, given that there's been so much breakdown the whether it's the pandemic or the you know I don't know how present, our political insanity is in the United States, people in Sweden, but I guess, you know, the United States still sneezes and it actually affects everybody. So, you know, I mean, it's just been such a a dispiriting year in terms of advancing the sustainable development goals, advancing the project of sustainability, advancing the things that we need to, the moves we need to make in a systemic way to get ourselves where we need to go always, in any situation, wherever you are, there is still a window of opportunity. There's windows that open as things fall apart, you know? And so the question that we're asking all our guests in this podcast is, in the presence of all that is going wrong, you as a cultural scout, as somebody who can see far and serves the common good, what do you see emerging that we can cooperate with. What are the what are the energies right now that are alive that um, hold promise from your point of view?
0: Hmm. Boy, you, you don't ask small questions, Vicky. But nah. then you never did. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the reasons I always like hanging out with you. Uh, first of all, a small a small correction. I don't I don't uh, lead a government agency. I lead a piece of a government agency. I'm I'm, uh, okay. I'm an assistant director general, which means I run a department. Uh, one of five um, departments that do the work of the agency, C um, as it's called, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, which is like USAID for Sweden, you might say. And so it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a little funny to listen to you describe me as someone who's on like the cutting edge, when <laughs> of course I'm sitting as a, a senior official in a government agency and government agencies are not usually known for being at the very cutting edge. The fun thing about working, working at CETA in Sweden is, is that it, it actually is. Um, in development cooperation terms and in the terms of the sustainable development issues that we've been working on for a long time, it, it is in many ways at, at, um, at the cutting edge. And, and Sweden itself is, you might say, a cultural scout in the development uh, cooperation community. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of the ways that we work in development cooperation, sustainable development, working to help Lots of other countries on their sustainable development journey it gets recognized and copied and and we have the the, the benefit of of being able to operate in, in that in that space in a way that um, uh, despite the fact that we're pretty small compared to the country that you're living in, uh, we we uh, we we can have some influence there. Um, but it's still it's kind of funny to think of myself as somebody on the cutting edge um, in the way that you've described people on your show here. And as I was listening to previous episodes, because um, sustainable, sustainable development for us at my agency in Sweden, and in Sweden, it's, it's mainstream. It's, it's so mainstream. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things that you might say. It's, it's funny to say that something being so mainstream is something emerging. But that is—we're I mean, finally at the point that you and I talked about 30 plus years ago—that we needed to get to. We needed to get to the point where sustainable development and all that it means—a system, a systems way of looking at the world, integrating the environmental and the social and the cultural and the human—you um, know—not sacrificing. Uh, nature to increase economic prosperity, not sacrificing economic prosperity to improve nature, doing it both at the same time, uh, working to help people improve their own lives under the conditions that they determine are the ways to help their lives. All those things that were sort of a big dream 30 years ago, Uh, sort of a pipe dream, you might say, a wild-eyed utopian vision are every day for me now. When... um, so the Swedish government sort of, uh, you might call them auditors, are, you know, study the the way that our bureaucracy is, is running and whether or not we're following the, uh, the, the, the various st- steering signals that we're supposed to follow from our government. They're looking to make sure that we're doing things like working for environment and climate change, working for gender equality, uh, <laughs> working to do development cooperation from the poor people's perspective, uh, and a lot more. So, I mean, the very first thing I want to say is is that the thing that I see emerging, the the thing that I see that's positive is 30 years of watching a truly wild-eyed utopian dream uh, cooked up by a bunch of UN people and grassroots activists and academics uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, having become, and still in the process of becoming, uh, everyday business, everyday policy, everyday bureaucracy, uh, everyday, um, the everyday work of many, many thousands and millions of people. I used to do a thing, Vicki, where I would every year, uh, or every couple of years maybe, do a kind of armchair analysis of how many people were working on sustainable development. And, you know, when we first met each other, you know, it was in sort of the, the high three figures. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. You mean one, two, three? <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> you know, there weren't many people. I, I'm, you know, it turns out I wasn't the first person to put sustainability on their business card, but but I was definitely you know among the earliest uh, in, in that in that regard. But you know, I gave up trying to do that count somewhere in the mid two thousands when I was up in the several hundred thousands of people who were professionally employed in some way as teachers, as consultants, as government officials, as uh, sustainability officers and companies. You know, that was a long time ago that it became sort of mainstream. Now it's deeply mainstream. Now you have the point, now you're at the point where, and here's one of the things I think that people can start to think about where to, where to engage. We're at the point now where the f- entire financial system is at this tipping point moment of really embracing uh, a sustainable development perspective where you know, the, the most influential leaders in the world are making public statements about diversity, about climate environment and climate change, uh, basically issuing warnings to the boards of directors of the companies that they in turn own that you know, we're gonna be watching you and we expect you to perform on these issues. Uh, and if you don't perform, there will be consequences in terms of where we place our capital. And, and that means that people in their ordinary financial lives, thinking about their pension savings and everything else are no longer restricted to tiny little niche funding opportunities uh, they can they can they can follow a, a general global development and vote with their dollars in terms of where they put their savings, uh, and and follow very well laid out pathways for that. And I'm not just talking and I'm not just talking about you know your ordinary saver. I can I'm also talking about large scale investors can now follow the signposts and help create you know, half a million connections to off grid electricity in Africa, which is good for the climate, good for literacy, good for women, uh, good for a whole host of issues. Uh, So there's no doubt about it that we're at the end of a, hopefully towards the end of a very down year in the area where I spend most of my working hours these days, uh, thinking about how to fight poverty and oppression with sustainable development. We figure we've lost maybe. We figure the World Bank and others figure we've, we've lost three to five to seven to ten years, depending on what you're looking at. Those are big numbers. We're not supposed to talk about problems on your show. No, it's but, okay.
1: No, but, it's okay. It's a, but. but it's in terms just, of knowing
0: what's emerging, you got to know what you're what you're kind exactly, of up exactly exactly. Uh, but what I what I note is that while the world has sort of slid down the hill on some issues of climate change we know how to climb that hill. We're not going to, it's not going to take that long to climb it back up again. And we've also found some openings of the kind that you're talking about. Uh, The whole dialogue around how to recover from COVID-19 is all around building back greener, fairer, better doesn't just mean, you know, richer. It means, it means better in the sense of in line with the planets, the planet's boundaries, in line with the Uh, what's required to, uh, to achieve uh, a better life for everybody on the planet. So as you can see, I mean, if you, if you ask me another question, I could certainly spin a tale of, of woe, but, uh, and, and, and the last year has created a great deal of very, very serious woe for many millions of people. Uh, And that's something we just can't avert our eyes from. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we've also learned quite a bit about how to recover what, to recover, what to take from what's currently happening and and use it, uh, for example, digital. I mean, one of the things we discovered was some of the conferences that we thought we were going to hold that were kind of exclusive, and maybe you invite some top decision makers from this sector and that sector, get them together in private rooms, and they talk about things, and they advance the agenda. And you know that's, that's, that is part of how the world works, and it is part of how people in top decision-making positions f- Find out what it is that needs to be done now and what they should be doing. Uh, But what's happened now is, since you can't do that, a lot of those meetings went digital. They went big. And we discovered from our own agency that meetings that we thought were going to have one or 200 people attending had 6,000 people watching the video.
1: Wow.
0: You know, and 6,000 people who, you know, some of them being influential. A colleague of mine who works in the United Nations recently was on one of these uh, digital meetings, and I won't give too many details, but it was it was a relatively high-level event with the institutions that you hear about in the press. And afterwards, got three phone calls from people who weren't actually even in that meeting, but they were number one in their organization, their number two had been there, for example, and heard what my colleague had been talking about. And wanted wanted in wanted to help wanted had an idea uh, having to do with moving more financing into the area of sustainable development in poor countries. Uh, so you know one digital meeting probably did did more than if it had been a real meeting with people flying into that particular city from all over the world and etc. It it still generated or maybe it generates more, and and in other ways it also generates more inclusion because. People can participate in these meetings on equal footing. Uh, you know, it's it's not like I arrived in first class and, and you arrived, you know, on on, the, on a boat with with a bunch of bananas in the cargo hold. You know, <laughs> we both arrived through the same digital fibers right. into the same digital space, speaking in, in uh, speaking to each other on the same terms. Anyway, so those are a few of the things I see emerging. I could
1: babble on. And so there's Sweden where you're having the experience of the fulfillment, you know, relatively, um, you know, stunning when you look back on it. stunning fulfillment of a pipe dream from 30 years ago, a context landing and influencing everything. You know, what we said back in 1990 was we want sustainability to be considered in every decision in the city of Seattle. You know, we want it to be integrated. That was our goal. Um, And you live somewhere where that's happening. And that's stunning because we fight for that here. How does a country like the United States, which is still so influential in the world, even after all the tearing down of our reputation, how does a country like the United States sort of catch the drift? Um,
0: since I have since I have two nationalities, I do end up having to explain one to the other and the other to the one um, in, in many contexts. And so, one of the things I constantly have to remind my European colleagues, because Sweden isn't isn't alone in in being a leading. Embracer of sustainable development and policymaking, both domestically and internationally. a lot of European countries and the entire European Union that's been doing that too, but I always have to remind A lot of my, some of my European friends, I have to keep reminding that the United States is not a monolith. It's not, it's not, it's not one thing. It's 50 states and lots of cities Where, where there's an incredible diversity of embrace, shall we say, of the sustainable development mindset whether whether it's using those words or not Uh, you live in the region around seattle and that's one of the places where it's more represented than in other places and then there are parts of the united states where we know that that's maybe a less happy and welcome uh, uh, expression of of local policy but the same is true here in in sweden and and, and, and in europe i mean we have variations uh, in our politics about how fondly people think about that that concept, uh, and uh, and Europe has famous fights about about that. So it's it's all about spectrum and centers of gravity and where the where the, where things right. have shifted. So we're we're you know we're, we're in the happy circumstance of more often arguing about the how rather than the weather to do it. Uh, but um, but it, but that's not uncomplicated.
1: <laughs> right. Right. It's not complicated. Yeah. And one more
0: thing, I just have to say this because you you asked. I mean, it's also really important to to, to note in relation to what I was just saying that the United States, throughout all the last years, has continued to do some really great stuff internationally that I'm not sure if a lot of Americans are aware of. Um, for, For example, there was an effort by the previous administration to reduce the international aid budget by 20 to 30 percent and and the administration never got its way on that congress always overruled them and in, in, increase increased the aid budget over those years now there were big debates and and um pol- you know polite but firm um moments in meetings between say my country and the united states uh, around previous policies uh on gender equality and access to uh, abortion and, and things like that but apart from those obvious points of stark disagreement there were there continued to be quite a lot of us funding of solar energy in africa for example one of the programs that we work with at, at, at my agency is called power africa it actually started in dialogue with uh, the previous previous administration which also also Created something called Power Africa. We worked together on that for some years. We have t- two different streams of activity joined by a common name at the moment, uh, and a lot of that stuff just kept going. So, so there was certainly a lot of um, a, a lot of a lot of things happening in the in the U.S. context that uh, political decision makers in my country found worrying, but uh, but there are also quite a lot of things that kept going very right. So it's it's important to Think about the United States as a country where, re- regardless of who's sitting in the White House, there are millions of people working to try to make the world a better place, and a lot of them kept at it during a period of time when when um, you know, not all the forces in government around them were in favor of that particular policy. We we watched that happening from my perspective in my agency. Just a little, just a little notice. There's yeah. we. It's a, it's a very um, it's a very appreciative and respectful dialogue that goes on between countries like this, uh, and uh, the, a lot that we appreciate in what uh, the U.S. does, and a lot that they appreciate in what we do. We learn from each other, and then we give each other criticism when it, when we feel that has to happen. But it, that happens at the political level, not between um, people like me and my counterparts.
1: Yeah. You know, the I think we're just going to probably start to like like steer toward the end of this conversation. But what's standing out for me. Um, is that what could possibly go right is the the basic weight of good people who work in government bureaucracies. And I know that sounds so like it's not revolutionary, but there is a ballast. There's a ballast. And when the ballast has momentum, it's like a big tanker, you know, and... and as we used to say in like transformational teaching, it takes six miles to even like budge the prow of a tanker because it's just got so much weight behind it. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, what I'm hearing from you is it's interesting in two ways. It's like number one, the weight of the work of thirty years. Is in the the hold of that tanker, you know. The tanker is maybe you don't think it's a sailboat. It's not moving fast enough. You know, we still need like Greenpeace out there. You know, but but still, that is moving. It it cannot be thrown off easily by the whims of an autocratic leader. And because of the news cycle, we get upset about statements made by autocratic leaders of things that they want to have happen, but it doesn't mean that they will happen. And this is actually probably the swamp that the former president talked about. You know, the immovable, you know, the arc of the moral universe, if you will. This is where the arc of the moral universe is actually enacting itself in the good people who stay the course, who stay in their positions Mm-hmm. and they keep moving the edge forward and so you know i i, I talked about you originally like a leading edge person but you know maybe this is this is the edge maybe it is the edge to work institutionally and to keep well, the institutions going go ahead
0: it's, it's, well it's also the case that that there are multiple edges uh, uh, you know the what where the, where the edge of innovation was 30 years ago is is now probably, for example, in Africa. It, it's it's not in my agency. Take, let me give you an example. One of the things I was thinking about, you know, where, where the cultural scouts, you know, what's what's happening, uh, and and uh, and I'm I'm glad you've gotten my one of my main messages, <laughs> which I <laughs> which is which is that. Um, uh, uh, that, that I believe in the power of long-term institutional change, uh, and I believe in that since we first started talking 30 plus years ago. I, I think one of the one of the few really accurate predictions I've ever made in my life was that this was going to take decades. This work, <laughs> and and it has. But by taking decades, it builds up that momentum that you're talking about. You know, we are heading in the right direction with storms to to deal with and all kinds of stuff. But the other thing to say is is that. There is an enormous cadre, a uh, generation of young people all around the world that is working really hard to advance the actual cutting edge right now uh, in everything from the arts to um, entrepreneurialism to artificial intelligence. We, uh, we at CETA, we teamed up with our with some colleagues in uh, another institution in Canada, and we funded. Um, uh, and recently, it was recently, recently launched a, uh, a new initiative for research on artificial intelligence in Africa. And I had the privilege of attending the launch digitally, of course. And, uh, and then, uh, and, and was, I was going to do the closing remarks, but I was listening to the whole thing, the, 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 the panel of speakers, the moderator, and the four speakers, experts in artificial intelligence, talking about how they're. Be, be, be working in the African context to make artificial intelligence more responsive to their needs, make sure that the frameworks for, for regulating it were uh, homegrown and, and to purpose and et cetera. It was for African women. So 30 years ago, that would not have been the case, that, that, that right. the principal speakers on a panel about the leading edge of, intelli- of artificial intelligence research would have been for African women. Uh, and I just thought, this this is the cutting edge. And, and the, the millions of other people uh, working in the countries where we work, who are innovating and working, and, and not just the people who are working at the sort of cutting edge of their particular professions, but you know the people in the refugee camps who are working to put a business together to give people access to a mobile phone or uh, working with organizers to create a safe space for women who otherwise might be at risk if they go get water in a, uh, you know, across the camp somewhere where it's uh, not safe. Um, all of those people are the real cultural scouts. That's what I want to say.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's so exciting. It's like things link up for me about uh, my friend Douglas Rushkoff has a book called Teen Human, Um, but it is sort of like team human. There's a game and we, and many of us are playing it and we're playing it in our own places and in our own ways, but there's some sort of, um, DNA of this thing that has come alive in amongst humanity. And there's rear guard and there's regressive people and there's you know there's all that dark stuff happening, but I can feel the light. I can feel the light through what you're saying. And I don't think you've just simply manipulated it for the purpose of this conversation. I think it's actually, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, I got it. I believe you. <laughs> so thank you, Alan, for this wonderful update. Thank you, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Join us on Patreon and become a financial supporter of the show and for exclusive content and special online events. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Beringrude, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.